In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. I had to resist every temptation this morning on the occasion of the baptism of my twin sons, Theodore and Thomas, to develop an extended typological reading of the Old Testament passage for this morning that we didn't read from the book of Genesis about Esau and Jacob, the two twin sons born to Isaac. I couldn't help but laugh when I saw this listed as one of the lectionary texts for this morning alongside of the passage that we read from Isaiah. The similarity between these two sets of twins are striking. For one, Thomas and Theodore were the product of hopeful prayers, both from Sarah and me and many of you. And like Jacob and Esau, who struggled within Rebekah, Theodore sat on Thomas's head for a good portion of Sarah's pregnancy. <laughs> Theodore is a chubby and voracious eater that would probably sell his inheritance to Thomas for a sip or two of milk. <laughs> and if you've seen Thomas, you know that he would be equivalent to Esau, the hairy one in the story, since his most readily identifiable feature is his completely natural hipster fade haircut. For your sake, though, and for the sake of our texts and topic this morning, I'll let the topology end here and will instead try to make sense of our texts in relation to the topic of baptism. In fact, I joked about this very thing with Father Martin last week, recalling Mark Galley's excellent baptism sermon a month or so ago at Pentecost. If you remember, Mark said he was going to avoid the lectionary texts entirely so that he could talk about baptism. And I suppose this probably wise choice reveals the main difference between editors and theologians. <laughs> theologians can make any text about whatever topic they want. <laughs> and so I will proceed with both the texts for this morning and the topic of baptism. Now, I imagine that many of you, like me, converts from low church evangelicalism to the high church Anglican communion have a bit of anxiety during baptism sermons, or if not anxiety, at least a bit of uncertainty. You wonder whether the preacher is going to address the 5,000-pound elephant in the room that is the question of what precisely happens when we invoke the Trinitarian baptismal formula on an unsuspecting child, wondering where exactly the boundary of Rome is as we walk alongside of and maybe even get our feet wet in the Tiber. Perhaps it's just the philosopher in me wanting some conceptual clarity on the mystery of this sacrament in which many Anglicans frequently are content to rest. I hope not to solve, though, but rather to illuminate the, this mystery as we examine some baptismal themes in the lectionary texts. So I will begin with the Old Testament reading from Genesis 25, where we are given the story of the twin brothers Jacob and Esau, returning later to Isaiah 55 that was read. These twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, were part of the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. While we aren't given the entire story in the lectionary text from this morning, I think we all are at least somewhat familiar with it. Jacob, with the help of his mother, plots to trick his brother and father so that he can receive what is not rightfully his, the birthright blessing and inheritance. And after successfully pulling off his plot, Jacob flees to the far country for a complex journey involving a tenuous relationship with a father-in-law, marrying the wrong person, 
a wrestling match with God, and ultimately worrying whether his estranged brother is going to seek revenge and wipe out his entire livelihood before killing him. Quite the journey indeed. But here's how it ends, according to Genesis. Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. In short, we see a story of estrangement and expected judgment end in reconciliation. The reconciliation of Jacob to Esau, to his father Isaac, and ultimately to God, when God reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob and gives him the new name, Israel. Perhaps as you hear the story succinctly recounted, Luke's parable of the prodigal son comes to mind. And if it doesn't, I think it probably should. A greedy son pursues a blessing outside of God's calling upon him, goes into the far country to deplete the blessing he received, realizes the error of his ways, returns hoping for only survival, and against all odds is given the kingdom and all its blessings. Estrangement, reconciliation, and renewal. This pattern is just basically the message of the gospel. And so what has this to do with baptism? Well, according to Article 27 of the 39 Articles, in baptism, the promises of the forgiveness of sin and of our adoption to be the sons of God by the Holy Ghost are signed and sealed. And so to be baptized means to become a part of a people who have been chosen by God, to be given a family not of your own choosing or an act of your own will as an adoption. It is to be immersed into a set of promises that are made on your behalf and for your own good. It is to be adopted into a new people, a people who will assuredly receive the blessing of God because the blessing is grounded in who God himself is. It is to be given a new name, unearned forgiveness, and unearned blessing like Jacob received from God, Isaac, and Esau. God's spoken blessing is precisely what we purport to be offering when, in the name of the Holy and Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we baptize persons into this fellowship. And, as the prophet Isaiah tells us, God's spoken words accomplish their purposes and won't return void. They won't return void because they are spoken by the God of Israel, revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. The baptismal blessing, which gives us a new name, resituates our identity, and we must constantly remind ourselves that we are in Christ, to borrow Paul's language in Romans. And so when you walk into this sanctuary under the waters flowing from the New Jerusalem on the back wall, you immediately encounter the baptismal font, where we will gather in a few moments. Some of you might touch the water to your fingers and make the sign of the cross on yourselves when you enter. This simple thing is a liturgical act to remind us of who we really are. Think about the people of Israel as they are standing just outside the promised land when Moses exhorts them to choose blessing over cursing. He recounts the whole entire story of God's redemptive purposes in the Exodus and God's faithfulness in their wilderness wanderings, of God's faithfully executing the promises that God made. He tells them the story of which they are in part in hopes that they might embrace the blessing that is always and already theirs. That is what we do every time we look back into the new heavens and new earth at the end of the service and touch the blessed water to our brows. We are reminding ourselves who we are, 
how we have been made new in our baptism and that new life in Christ by the Spirit and the forgiveness that that new life brings is continually ours. But if Genesis 25 and Isaiah 55 assure us of God's unconditional love and forgiveness offered to sinners and of God's fidelity to God's promises, Matthew 13, the gospel text, complicates the picture somewhat, as Jesus frequently does. Jesus, in what is known as the parable of the sower, sketches a picture of several types of people. The seed sown on rocky ground, the seed sown among thorns, and the seed sown on good soil. The seeds planted in rocks and thorns represent, we are told, those who hear the word of God and either embrace it for a while, only to abandon it after some difficult time, or reject it entirely for the sake of wealth and the goods of the world. The seed sown on good ground, we are told, both hears and understands God's word and flourishes in its life and vocation. So here is the problem. In practicing infant baptism, the set of people that are baptized is not identical to the set of people who are scattered on good soil. There are, in other words, people who are baptized and yet end up rejecting the teachings of Christ, either by not being confirmed or by denouncing the faith after their confirmation. This really isn't a problem if you only think baptism is just a sign or a profession of faith, since on that view, baptism doesn't really do anything to the person being baptized. And if baptism doesn't really do anything to a person, if it's only a sign, then we can easily say that that person's profession of faith just wasn't genuine, or that he or she fell away from grace, if you are of the mind that such a thing is possible, which I'm not. But for those of us who embrace the 39 articles, we have to deal with this, and here's Article 27 again. Baptism is not only a sign of profession and mark of difference, whereby Christian men and women are discerned from others that be not christened, but it is also a sign of regeneration or new birth, whereby as an instrument, they that receive baptism rightly are grafted into the church. And then it adds, the baptism of young children is in any wise to be retained in the church as most agreeable with the institution of Christ. We will all be praying with hope that one day these boys will come to their confirmation to make this faith given to them today their own faith. But even in the act of making this faith their own, Thomas and Theo will be told that even their own intentionality, their choosing for themselves, is in fact not their own. It has already and beforehand been given to them by those who went before them, their parents and grandparents, their godparents, their priests, their church, and all others who promise on their behalf because they're promising on behalf of Jesus Christ. To claim at any point that an action of choosing like this is mine, as if it comes about ex nihilo from our own volition, is human hubris at its best, or better, at its worst. Baptism reminds us of this thing. But how can we be sure that the word of God will not fall on these boys like seeds thrown on thorny or rocky ground? Well, this is where we all come in. As the church, we who will promise to welcome Thomas and Theo and uphold them in their new life in Christ will function a bit like gardeners, cultivating the soil so that the seed of the proclaimed word doesn't get snatched up by thorns or rocks. And your prayers, rebuke, instruction, teaching, 
love, and guidance will constitute the soil in which these boys will grow and, God willing, will flourish in their new life in Christ. And Sarah and I are grateful to have you all as gardeners alongside of us. But while baptism is about new birth in Christ by the Spirit, we would do well to remember that baptism is also about death. Or more specifically, baptism is about the death into which we are baptized, the death of Christ the Redeemer. This is precisely the context of the epistle for this morning in Romans 8. Two chapters earlier in Romans 6, 4, Paul can say, We are buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. But you are not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit, since the Spirit of God dwells in you, he says. The collect for this morning offers a prayer for God's faithful people who are governed and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And baptism is God's declaration that in our action, Thomas and Theodore are a part of these people. Their vocation will now be a resurrection vocation. Their old selves will die in the death of Christ, and their new selves will be raised in his resurrection, not symbolically, but actually. In this way, baptism is God's giving the promise that reconciliation is always and already Thomas and Theodore's, just as it is always and already yours, and always and already mine. Baptism is a sign and seal of the gospel. And this is what Paul means when he says that if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies also through his spirit that dwells in you. The promise of baptism is new life in Christ now and new life in the resurrection after we die. Now, in my experience, the greatest challenge for Christians today, especially evangelical Christians, is the temptation to hold reality at an arm's length. And here's what I mean. When we witness acts of love and kindness, watch children grow in faithfulness to Christ's call, and take the Eucharist with one another every Sunday, we often fail to see these very things done in these mundane ways as themselves glowing with the fiery presence of the Spirit of Christ. We have trouble seeing God's works as not other than the things that we do every day. But if the incarnation means anything at all, it means that our transcendent God ruptures reality with redemptive presence. This is true in baptism as well, since historically the most pressing disagreements related to the problem of baptism were the distinction between the outward visible sign of the water and the inward invisible work of God. Seeing normal human actions as being taken up and made the very works of God, not because of their veracity, but because of God's grace, can help us overcome this difficulty. So I take it then that baptism is a declarative sort of utterance, much like what will happen in a marriage ceremony. It simultaneously recognizes something to be the case, even while inaugurating a new state of affairs. So when a priest pronounces a man and woman to be husband and wife, the priest is both recognizing that there is already love and commitment between these two people, even while making it the case that something new comes about, that something new is true of them. I now pronounce you husband and wife. And then you can kiss the bride. In baptism, the repetition of the Trinitarian formula does something similar. It marks persons off as people of God because of the word of God's blessing. 
In Marilyn Robinson's Gilead, the Reverend John Ames contemplates the mystery of baptism and says, there is a reality in blessing, which I take baptism to be primarily. It doesn't enhance sacredness, but it acknowledges it. And there is a power in that. The sensation is of really knowing a creature. I mean, really feeling its mysterious life and your own mysterious life at the same time. One of the blessings of all souls is listening to fathers Martin and Andrew pronounce a blessing on the children of this church during the Eucharist. It was meaningful to me even before we had children of our own to watch our priests kneel down, touch the heads of these precious little creatures, and pronounce the blessing of God on their lives. This is close to as clear of a picture of unmediated divine grace as we might ever see. It's a sacred act that will get repeated this morning, and albeit in a different form in baptism. And with that, I will close with one more word from Reverend Ames, who seems to get so many things right in reflecting on theological topics. He says, whenever I take a child into my arms to be baptized, I am, so to speak, comprehended in the experience more fully, having seen more of life, knowing better what it means to affirm the sacredness of the human creature. May we know this sacredness today, tomorrow, and for the rest of our lives. Amen.